0: That's ixl.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I am your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Your to-do list is a hungry monster that is never satisfied. For the last year and a half, I've helped principals get awards, get promoted, and find the time to do the work that really matters. I recently opened a new mastermind slot. Schedule a call with me and let's overcome the stressed and isolated principal position together. Go to the show notes for this episode at TransformativePrincipal.org and click schedule a call with Jethro. Welcome to Transformative Principal. This is Jethro Jones. I am excited to have Mike Fisher on the podcast today. He is an author, consultant, and blogger, and also a former middle school teacher Mike, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to Transformative
1: Principle. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. I'm glad I finally got through that introduction without messing up. That's an <laughs> exciting piece, and uh, hopefully we can cut out that first part where I really screwed up. But anyway, welcome. Glad to have you. And you uh, just released a new book called Hacking Curriculum Design, I believe. Hacking Instructional Design. Instructional Design. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> Like I said, I'm all discombobulated, but I'm excited to talk to you because I'm a big fan of people who talk about doing things differently. So can you start by telling us a little bit about the ideas behind hacking instructional design?
1: Sure. So be like my VH1 behind the music special. (laughs) There you go. So a lot of things actually led to this. This was actually uh, going to be a book about curriculum mapping. And when I started writing the curriculum mapping book, it's a you know, we're in a time right now where there's so much going on in education. There's so many new standards and laws and the Every Student Succeeds Act and previously it was raised to the top and there's all this stuff that's that's eating up teachers time to to plan and so a lot of times it's easier just to purchase a curriculum or have some sort of vendor resource or support and I really feel like we were getting away from you know our expertise as teachers and and being able to do the things that we know are are good decisions for the students that we have including you know contemporary modern authentic uh, type actions and so we just we we thought about like what I was going to go into this curriculum mapping book, and it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, we decided to shift our focus to uh, contemporary instructional design and not just the documentation of the work, but how do you actually go about building something? What are all of these different building blocks that could be a menu items choices for teachers to make, whether they're building something brand new or whether they're uh, enhancing something that they already have. So that's kind of where this sort of bloomed from. And initially this was supposed to be just, you know, a, like a three or four month project. Uh, and it ended up taking us about a year and a half uh, to get everything done. And what you, what what's in the book is actually still a distillation of of what we did. There's a lot more uh, that we did that we've, we've published a bonus uh, book to go with this. And we've got enough material, I think, for another book, if, if this one does well. So we're just, we're really interested in what teachers create. and We're really interested in teachers being experts and being the uh, creators of curriculum and not just receivers of one.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that's a really powerful idea. So one of my frustrations is that so much of the curriculum that we buy, we then feel like because we bought it, we need to like go through it all and teach it all to our kids. And we've given away the responsibility of teaching to a publisher. And I just have a real deep inherent problem with that because the publisher, they're trying to make something that is for as many people as possible so that they can make money. And when we give that away to them, then and then feel obligated to actually do what's in their book. I mean, that just seems so backward to me. And yet it's so hard for us to break out of that mold. Why do you think it's so hard to move away from curriculum and and publisher driven products?
1: Well, I think there's several reasons, but chief among them is uh, what Dan and Chip Heath called decision paralysis. They wrote a book called Switch that I read many years ago. Uh, That was about changing things when change is difficult. It was written for from a a business perspective, but I saw immediate application in education and decision paralysis has to do with the number of things that you have to consider or the number of decisions that you have to make. It's easier just to not make one. And that's a horrible thing to think about. um, Educators like being in that that zone, like there's there's so many decisions to make. We can't make one. So let's just buy something and And cover what we need to cover, I think other things too, when a new teacher shows up in a, you know their new job, new district, you know sometimes there are things that are just part of the system they're going into, so they've never had a hand in developing the curriculum. Or, you know, it might be a seasoned teacher who, you know, back in the day and when they went to college, you know, they prepared their lesson plan for the sake of saying that they did it, but they never really got to the heart of curriculum design and what all the elements are and how well we need to understand the standards, how well we need to design assessments for, you know, integrity and reliability and making sure they're measuring what we intend for them to measure. And, you know, it's it's All of those things sort of come together in this perfect system of it's easier to buy something that, you know, a company created. And like you said, that's, it's not, it's not great practice because those companies don't know your children and to let some outsider make that decision, I think is egregious.
0: I absolutely agree. So let's talk a little bit about what curriculum is, because as I've moved from different district to different district. I've learned that people have different definitions for curriculum. So I'll tell you what my belief is, and then you can feel free to correct me. I believe that curriculum is all the materials that help us teach the standards that the state or or whatever governing body requires us to teach. Is that a fair summary, or do I need to refine that a
1: little bit? I think that's pretty close. I mean, you have to consider all of the elements. The standards are part of that. The instructional resources, whatever the assessments are, any external assessments like standardized tests, all of those things get wound up in the curriculum. But this, you know, the first word of this book is hacking. So it wouldn't be hacking if we didn't sort of, you know, break this down into manageable things. And so in the book, uh, we actually talk about the curriculum is really uh, boiled down to three big things the what, the how, and the how well. And that's it. Everything else you add enhances the curriculum, but those are the big pieces. And the the what comes from the standards. Uh, The how comes from the skills and what the expectations are of the students and what they need to be able to do and any instructional activities that you do. And the how well is the assessments. So standards, content, skills, assessments, the what, the how, the how well. And it really just boils down to those those big things because we don't want it to be this overwhelming cloud that, you know, teachers can't get through. And so we wanted to try to make it manageable so that teachers could start designing what they're doing. And, you're, you know, you're in a, in a previous book. I called this uh, sort of a triptych uh, mode. Whenever I was a kid, my parents used to order the triptychs from Triple A. And I actually had to uh, write them to get permission to use uh, their trademark in the book. And they were, they were very nice about it. But I see curriculum as, you know, sort of a triptych. We define our destination. And then uh, we've got all these different instructional opportunities. And we, you know, divin a path to that destination. And that path might change every year. You know, when we used to go to Florida as kids, we didn't always take the same trip. But we always got to Florida. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, that that is really important. <laughs> so, Triptychs, I don't actually know what those are. So, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. The American Automobile Association, uh, years before Google Maps and all our devices and how we, you know, use technology to navigate the world, you used to be able to purchase maps uh, that would, you order them from AAA. And this triptych would come. It's like a flip thing. I think I have one on my shelf over here. I'll look for it in a moment. But you you would get this sort of flip book uh, in the mail. You tell them, you know, I want to go to Florida. I want to go to Chicago. I want to go to L.A. And they would send you the route. But what they would also send you is any construction that was along the way, anywhere where there was going to be barriers or impediments to your journey. They laid those out for you, and then they also told you all the things that were going on on your journey to wherever you were going. So let's say you were going to. Orlando. And on the way, there was a peach festival in Georgia that might be worth your time. Uh, There might be a beach in Jacksonville before you get to Orlando that you might want to stop at. They told you all of the really cool destinations. And so you could design a trip that made the journey to get to the destination as much of a part of your vacation as the destination itself. And so I thought it was a really good metaphor for a curriculum design, instructional design and helping teachers understand that, you know, it's not, it's not this big new idea. Uh, these ideas have been around a while, and we want to make it palatable enough to, and easy enough that, you know, you can do it yourself.
0: Well, I really appreciate that you brought that piece up because I think that that is really important, that what the way you get to the destination is as important as actually getting to the destination. I think that's a great, a great metaphor for talking about curriculum and instruction of design, because it gives you power as the teacher to say, this is what we value and this is what we want to make sure we're paying attention to. And it's more than just getting a result on an assessment or teaching a particular standard. It's about the experience that the students have in going through that. So can you give us some ideas? Uh, our audience is mostly principals. And so how do principals take these ideas and start encouraging their teachers to approach their instructional design differently?
1: Um, well, one of the big things, and this is early, early on before I knew you know, what I know now about instructional design, but when I, my first teaching position in Kannapolis, North Carolina I was under a principal then, his name was Ron Hanbarrier, and then later um, another principal, Chip Buckle. And one of the things that both of them did very well was encourage collaboration and communication amongst the teachers. And we had, uh, it was just the culture of the building that we met as both a grade level and as a content area uh, at least once a week and sometimes more. Uh, so that we could be on the same page about what each other was doing. And then we could make suggestions about those things. And, you know, as long as there was some collegial dialogue about it, we could take risks and we could try things out. And I think that's what led to me being a better teacher initially, because I it was just as important to me to have an impact on my students, but to also allow my colleagues to have an impact on me and my teaching. It was almost like a, a learning lab uh, where I'm not I'm not teaching in isolation, and I know what other experiences are for for teachers in other schools, but, you know, I had a really good experience right at the beginning to create that culture of communication, and that's that's one of the big sort of uh, umbrellas that we talk about in the book. If you're going to be an instructional designer, you have to be a good communicator, and I think one of the best steps that a principal can take is to encourage collaborative and communicative behaviors um, amongst the staff. So that everybody's talking about this culture of success for all.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think about a similar experience that I had when I started teaching and how in the first couple of years, being able to have that communication and freedom to know that I could do what I wanted. So in my first school, I was shown my room and said, those are your literature books over there. And, you know, good luck. And thankfully, I. I knew better than to just say, all right, I'm going to go through those literature books. And what I found very quickly with my very diverse student population that those books were not going to be engaging to any of my students. And so I started creating different opportunities for them to learn. And thankfully, I had this innate idea of how education should be that is you know, aligned with your triptychs um, advice that you know, it made it much easier for me to do that. And then my second year, I got, reduced in staff from one school to another school. And the second school was just like doing everything right. And it was just amazing to see how when we had a team and we could all get together and talk about how to make things better for kids, not only did it make it better for the kids, but it also made it much better for us as adults to enjoy and engage in teaching in a much more powerful way than we could have done otherwise, which was just awesome for me to start out as a teacher
1: so while you were talking i leaned over to my bookcase and i got an example of a triptych here this one's from new jersey you've got the there's a big map here and it shows you all the different places it shows the um route that you might take and there's some additional material that comes with this that tells you all the different uh, things that are going on and including like toll locations like i when i was you know working on this as a metaphor, I thought, how awesome is it that I know, you know, all these roadblocks ahead of time, because what happens in a classroom, you know, and, you know, with, with special ed needs, with um, kids getting to the finish line, some quicker than others, like this, this triptych is a really good metaphor, because it lays out all those potential roadblocks and what you can do to avoid them or get over them. And I just I love the notion of it. I talk about it all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's a that's a great, great way to look at it. So we want to give teachers a, a culture of co- uh, communication and freedom to do what they need to do. What else should a principal be focusing on to help teachers be successful in this?
1: You know, I I work with a lot of principals, and when I'm when I'm in their building, you know, there's there's the day to day stuff that they have to deal with. You know, they're they're constantly having to think about like parents and uh, working on the you know the the running of the building and. Sometimes the, their, their primary function of being the, the learning leader is pushed aside to get other things done. And I think that some of what needs to happen is just to re- hit that sort of refresh button of what's my purpose? And my purpose is to be the learning leader of this, this organization, this school. And how can I promote uh, this culture of you know, loyalty to the learner? Uh, in my building, how can I do everything that I can do in my power uh, to um, make this a place of learning, not just teaching, but of of really valuing the the learner and the learning that's happening in the building? And I mean, I know the reality of what goes on in schools every day, but I think that if I were you know a principal of a school, that I would really try to let that be my lens. Am I doing what's best for kids? Am I doing what's best for learning? And then hopefully everything else will. You know, fall fallout in the loss.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and honestly it usually does because those other things that we feel like we need to get done that we don't actually need to get done they take care of themselves or they just they just don't matter anymore and and that's the reality so one of the uh, chapters in your book is right sizing the work can you talk a little bit about that and what that means
1: yeah, I'm actually, this is part of my uh, presentation for ASCD in a couple of weeks, which will be over by the time this comes out. But I'm very interested in the notion of students being uh, co-creators of the instructional design and teachers allowing them some voice and choice in Uh, The actions and the the, you know the propelling of the the learning in the classroom, and so right-sizing the work uh, has to do with breaking you know the standard or the the big objective or the assessment down into manageable bits for the teachers. Uh, As much as I want to uh, to break this down for teachers, I also want teachers to break this down for students. So oftentimes, uh, where this came from uh, was when I work with teachers and I work with their curriculum. A lot of times, I see learning targets in their curriculum maps or in their curriculum documentation but the learning target is just the standard statement with the words i can in front of it or students will be able to you know ask and answer questions about details and text so what does that mean for the kid and so we want to we want to break that down into manageable chunks so if the kid has to you know describe the, uh, in the book, I talk about like properties of plants and animals, like what are their parts? How do those parts keep them alive? You know, the standard might be this one like uh, cohesive, short, efficient sentence about what they have to do, but it might contain like six individual actions. And we want to get teachers talking about what those individual actions are so that they can work with the students to learn those things and master them and and have high levels of transfer not just a sort of a rote regurgitation you know because it's Friday and we got to take the chapter 5 test if we really want them to learn it then we got to break it down into manageable milestones so that's what right sizing is all about manageable milestones
0: yeah and so that that seems like a a no brainer when you explain it how you did and yet that just doesn't happen teachers get so busy with you know grading assignments and giving feedback and all that kind of stuff that they they spend their time doing that instead of planning learning experiences instead of just regular old lesson plans right and so how does this approach help teachers take some of that off their plates so that they're not spending as much time grading because I think that is really a whole nother piece that you know it's not the purpose here but how do you design something so that you're not you're not spending hours grading later so quick example while you think of an answer is <laughs> as an english teacher i gave you know we had to write a lot because i wanted kids to be good writers and i thought at first that i needed to read everything they wrote and grade everything they wrote and thankfully i learned very quickly i didn't have the capacity to do that and so you know sometimes teachers give out assignments And then they complain about having to grade them. And it's like, well, why did you ever agree to grade it? Like, you don't have to give feedback on every piece of writing that you receive as an English teacher, for example. And so anyway, as you start out from the beginning, that's one of those roadblocks that's going to get in the way or a toll that's going to slow you way down. How do you design to eliminate or minimize that extra work that you
1: have to do on the back end? So this could probably get us 10 more shows out of the I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm pretty passionate about it. And when I speak about it, I know that I'm pushing buttons and I know that I'm propagating, but I want to just make it bluntly clear what my position is. Kids do not care about your grades. And as a parent of a contemporary of two contemporary kids, I don't care about their grades either. I want to know that they are learning. I want to know what they've learned. I want to know what they're doing with their learning. And that's going to come from formative assessment and feedback and not grading everything. I know that systemically, culturally, nationally, whatever, grades are still part of the, the picture. And it's not going to be an easy sale to get people to set it all on fire and burn and get away, just be done with it. But we've got, you know, a, an opportunity here with these contemporary learners to, A, let them be accountable to each other. B, let them be accountable to the world. And what I mean by that is when you change the audience from just the teacher receiving uh, the the demonstration of learning to the world or their peers receiving their demonstrations of learning, the quality changes. And we want to up the level of quality in what they're demonstrating to us as a result of Their learning. And so I think the the easy thing would be to just say, go formative and go with their peers. Let them do some self assessment. Let them do some peer assessment. Let them give feedback to each other. Try to shift toward rubric grading, but make sure that the the students are well grounded in what the rubric says and how it's going to help them improve. And, And don't grade things like creativity and neatness because those are all um behavioral things or things that might be outside of the student's control but like what is it that they're learning and put you know put some time into that uh rubric development time that uh, is going to save you from doing a lot of grading if you're overwhelmed by it and stop doing it you know if you if you have to have grades get the grades that you have to have but that doesn't necessarily equate to learning you know if. If a kid is learning to ride a bicycle and, you know, on day one, he falls off the bike. I give kid a zero. He didn't do it. Day two falls off the bike. Give him a zero. We get to day 10 and the kid rides the flipping bike and I give him a hundred on that day. When I combine all of his grades together, he's got a 10%. Does he know how to ride a bike? The grade's not going to tell me that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, again, seems pretty simple. When we're talking about now and yet
1: Well, saying it and doing it, I think are two different things. <laughs>
0: that's right. So I'm I'm glad that you talked about the idea of of making kids accountable to the world. My first year of teaching, when I started realizing I couldn't grade all their work, I got some old computers that the school was gonna throw away, and I said, All I need is them to be able to get on the internet and be able to publish to this blog. And yep. I shouldn't have said that because my principal flipped out and the technology people flipped out. And I said, oh, never mind. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Just forget I said anything. I just need the computers. And so these kids started blogging and they were able to create some really powerful stuff that I didn't have to read all the time, that they read each other's stuff. And when it was good, then it was really good. And when it was not good, then they saw right away that it wasn't good. And they changed what they were doing to improve much faster. And so, you know, seventh and ninth grade students is what I was teaching at that time. And they were were blogging and nobody else was doing that. And so nobody knew, you know, how to deal with that happening. But it was really powerful that they started caring about what they were creating much more than they had before. And it wasn't just an assignment anymore. It was something that they cared about. And certainly there were some kids who were good at that, who went above and beyond and would write 30 blog posts where the other kids only wrote 10. And you know what, Mike, that wasn't a bad thing either. That was great. That's awesome. They got more experience. They were pursuing a passion and that was all well and good. So yeah, I think, I think you've got some really good advice. I would highly recommend people get Hacking Instructional Design and uh, you can get that on Amazon pretty easily. Or then go to your website at digigogy, D-I-G-I-G-O-G-Y dot com.
1: Digigogy. My wife calls it diggity dog. <laughs> diggity dog. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a anyway. combination of the words digital and pedagogy, just sort of my intersection of uh, what I do with schools. So it's D-I-G-I-G-O-G-Y dot com. And you can pronounce it however you want. Yep.
0: Yep. I'm going to call it digigogi, but I like your diggity dog from your wife. That's pretty good. Um, so the last question that I asked, Mike, is uh, what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative leader like you?
1: I think I already covered it. Invite conversation, invite communication, invite collaboration, and you know, make that a focal point. Get people talking so that they can do what's best for the students and be loyal to learning. I think that's that's probably the biggest message in the book. How do we remain loyal to the learner and to learning? And conversation is a great entry point for that. And having these professional conversations, being able to reflect on things that have happened uh, and be able to make decisions before things happen. It's, it's like your own formative assessment for your job and, and the way that you do things. And, you know, making sure that you're you're clearing that path for teachers to be you know, as collegial as possible, because it's what's best for kids.
0: Yeah. And Mike, how do people contact you and learn more from you besides your website, diggitydog.com?
1: Besides the website, I have a Twitter addiction. So my username on Twitter is at Fisher1000, at F I S H E R 1000. I'm on it all the time. The notifications pop up on my phone. And every so often, I do a Twitter chat. Uh, I just did one for um, hashtag hacklearning, and I'll likely do another one in a couple of months. I also want to mention my wife was the co author on this book. This is her first book. Um, oh, cool. I've written several, but um, she is at Elizabeth Fisher on Twitter as well. Uh, and she can also answer questions. But we've, you know, this was sort of a combination of everything we've learned up to this point. So it's it's sort of a compendium of our learning together. Cool. So we're, we're really happy that it's out in the world. <laughs> well, that's
0: awesome. Congratulations. And thank you so much for being part of transformative principle today. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much. Do you want to
0: simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments?